Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. Uh, my background is in chemistry. I think that chemistry is the science that ties all the other sciences together. Because if you have a feel for what molecules are all about, what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. A lot of stuff happening in the world. Uh, last Monday was the first day of our Chartier Public Science Symposium, and we heard from Britt Hermes, a former naturopath who has since become a real scientist, and uh, from Brendan Nayan, who's a, a professor of government uh, in, in the United States. Um, we heard about misinformation, and we're continuing tomorrow at noon. And uh, to get the link, you can go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. And we're going to have two fascinating and fantastic speakers. One of them is Anthony Werner from uh, the UK. He's a chef. And uh, he uh, has a background in biochemistry. So that's an interesting combo. He has written a number of books, including a book called The Angry Chef. He's going to talk about current controversies and misinformation in the world of food. Uh, so he will be uh, kicking it all off. And then we will have Wendy Zuckerman, who uh, is the host of a really, really neat podcast called Science Versus. And uh, we're going to discuss uh, COVID and the misinformation that has uh, been around because of that uh, affliction. So that's tomorrow at noon. You can tune in uh, live and uh, you can get all of the info at mcgill.ca slash OSS. I do have a question for you. This week, there has been a lot of talk about the Great Barrington Declaration and uh, its opposition, which is the Jon Snow Declaration. So I would like you to just give me, uh, in a capsule form, what is meant by the Great Barrington Declaration, what is meant by the Jon Snow Declaration, and where those names come from. Where does the name Great Barrington come from, and the Jon Snow, and why have those names been given to these two uh, competing declarations? <clears throat> We also had some very sad news this past week. James Randi passed away at the age of 92. He has uh, been bothered by all kinds of medical uh, problems in, in the last few years, so it's not as if it was totally unexpected. Uh, but there are few people in the world who would one would say are irreplaceable. But I think uh, the amazing one, as he was known in the skeptical and and uh, magical community is one of those. He has had a great history, both as a performer, as an escape artist, and uh, as a skeptic, battling all kinds of uh, charlatans in his uh, long life. It is a very big loss to the skeptical and scientific community. And uh, of course, uh, the pseudoscience people are going to be very happy that they no, no longer have to contend with the brilliant mind of... Uh, James Randi. Anyway, I, I uh, do want to uh, pay tri tribute to, to Randi, and I thought what I would do would be to uh, go back to an article I wrote about 25 years ago when I had the chance of meeting Randi for the first time. So let me uh, provide you with that uh, little glimpse into history. This is what I wrote 25 years ago. <clears throat> 
Everyone should go to a magic convention at least once in their lives. You'll be fooled and entertained as coins vanish, selected cards rise out of decks, and $10 bills float in midair in front of your eyes. But most important, you'll never look at the world the same way again. Frankly, I can't think of a better way to foster critical thinking than to be fooled by the honest charlatans at a magic convention. So what is an honest charlatan? We better start by defining what a charlatan is. Simply put, a charlatan pretends to have some power, skill, or knowledge that he actually does not possess. Claims can range from the ability to remove tumors without making an incision to causing spoons to bend by psychic means. An honest charlatan can produce the same effects, but freely admits that it is all done by trickery. The dean of honest charlatans is uh, the amazing Randy, one of my idols. <clears throat> and again, this, uh, this is going back now uh, 25 years, and uh, even then, uh, Randy was indeed one of my uh, idols. He's a world-famous magician, but more significantly, he is uh, a, a skeptic galore, and he questions everything, and um, he has just a brilliant mind, and he can differentiate between uh, fact and fiction. What a delight it was for me to finally meet the Amazing One at Montreal's annual magic convention. For two hours, we chatted about the current widespread belief in various types of silliness and the importance of exposing fraud wherever it exists. Randy has built a formidable career on such exposures, and he has put his money, currently 1.1 million mouth is. Anyone can claim the money, providing they can produce a paranormal phenomenon under controlled conditions. Let them telephatically determine the contents of a sealed envelope, move an object by psychokinesis, or bend a spoon by mental power. The challenges have been tested. No one so far has walked away with the money. And let me add, <laughs> that is still true. Nobody still has. Uri Geller hasn't even applied for it. Oh yeah, Uri Geller. It is virtually impossible to discuss Randy without talking about the psychic superstar who for nearly three decades has been bending spoons and bending minds for a living. Geller, a seemingly charming former Israeli magician, claims to have abilities that he himself doesn't understand. Gently rubs keys and they bend, he runs his hands up clusters and determines which ones contain water. Strangely enough, though, he cannot do these things when Randy is around. When Geller first came to the U.S., he guested on The Tonight Show. The appearance was anticipated eagerly because Geller had already captivated huge live audiences with feats and now millions of TV viewers would finally get a chance to see the phenomena that science could not explain. The appearance was a total fiasco. Geller was unable to produce anything. He didn't feel right, he said. The energy just wasn't there that night. But it was quite apparent that the psychic powers had actually failed Geller earlier. Otherwise, he would have known that Johnny Carson was an amateur magician and that the show's producers had consulted Randy about how psychic feats could be carried out using magician's tricks. Geller couldn't bend the spoon supplied by the show. He couldn't determine which sealed canister contained water because on Randy's advice, the canisters were firmly attached to the table. Geller's usual trick of imperceptibly shaking the table to see which canister moved did not work. Only Geller was visibly shaken. Strangely, the psychic flop did not destroy Geller's career. His next appearance was on the Donahue show, and everything worked. Proof, Geller said, that he was not a magician, he was for real. 
If he was just doing tricks, they would work all the time. Eventually, numerous articles and books appeared explaining how Geller performed his stunts and North American interest in the spoon bend. He moved to England, where he now claims to help companies find gold and oil by psychic map reading and markets Yuri Geller's mind power kit with crystal quartz for psychic healing. Belief in psychic spoon bending may seem tough, but it is not. If you can believe that metal can be bent by thought processes, you can also believe that tumors can be removed from a body without any trace of an incision being left. Such psychic surgery is performed by standard sleight-of-hand tricks and looks very impressive. But what, actual, what happens to actual cancer patients, of course, they are taken over by a ruse. Might they be foregoing some effective therapy because of this? Randy's purpose is not to uncritically debunk. It is to fairly evaluate claims. He, like any scientist, would be thrilled if our scientific sphere could be expanded. How exciting it would be if we could send messages to each other <clears throat> telepathically, if we, could <clears throat> if we were being visited by aliens, if we could treat disease by therapeutic touch. Well, none of these things have been shown to be scientifically valid. And uh, Randy was always there to point that out. And uh, two hours had flown by. I couldn't monopolize the amazing one anymore. Anyway, I had to go and check out the magic dealers. My psychic key bender had worn out and I needed a new one. I also found a new spoon effect. Spoon spinner allows the magician to charge, to change an ordinary teaspoon with his aura and then use it to pick up another spoon. Of course, no one else can repeat this. I had to have it. I could hardly wait to get home and demonstrate my acquisition. But when I took the spoons out of my pockets, one of them was bent. Could it be that I have some unrecognized psychic power? Maybe. Or maybe I just sat on the spoon. So I wrote 25 years ago. And uh, I still have the same kind of admiration for Randy. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. I think he is pretty well irreplaceable. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I'm looking for someone to tell me what the Great Barrington Declaration is and its opposition, the Jon Snow Declaration is, and why they are termed such. What is the Great Barrington and who was Jon Snow? Give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. I think I have Fernando on, on the line. Fernando. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Um, I have the old question between butter and margarine and which one is better, and is omega-6 really uh, uh, artery-clogging fat? No, omega-6 is certainly not an artery-clogging fat. It's the saturated fats that are, quote, artery-clogging. Uh, I don't like margarine. I don't like the taste of margarine. I would rather use a small amount of butter. And uh, indeed, the evidence that uh, you know saturated fats are a big component of uh, coronary disease, uh, I think, uh, has been somewhat overblown. I think small amounts of saturated fat are, are okay, as long as you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables along with them. I would rather eat butter than, than margarine, and certainly stay away from any margarine that, that uh, on the label says that it's been hydrogenated, because that means that it can contain some trans fats. 
uh, although those margins today are, are fewer because government regulations uh, are making it harder for those to be marketed. But uh, my approach is that I would rather use a small amount of, of, of butter. And uh, if you have good butter, you don't need all that much on a piece of bread to give it good taste. Butter because of the question of taste, but if the taste of margarine that you're using is fine, uh, then margarine theoretically would be a better a, a product for for anyone with a, with a possible heart condition. Well, in, in in theory, yes. In practice, I don't think it makes much difference because if you're eating that much margarine, that it would make a difference, you know, in comparison to that much butter, then you're eating too much of either one. So as okay. long you know, as long as you're eating a limited amount of these fats, I don't think it matters which one you eat. Yeah, just toast in the morning, but uh, uh, someone's telling me that omega six is one of the worst fats you can have. And There's, no, that that that's that. that's nonsense. Okay. Uh, omega uh, omega six fats are are the are polyunsaturated fats, and they do go rancid more uh, more easily. Uh, which is the reason that uh, manufacturers hydrogenate those fats because that converts them into saturated fats. No, they those it is not true that uh, those are particularly dangerous. Well, we just have to watch out for the trans fat and make sure there's no yes. trans fat yes. or, and, and, or hydrogenated fats. And uh, amounts, amounts. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's the key. Okay, thanks okay. very much for the info. Okay, right. All right, so I'm, I'm still looking for... Uh, that I'm surprised that you haven't come up with that because it was all over the news this past week about the Great Barrington Declaration and uh, what that is uh, what that is all about. Uh, okay, we got uh, Jimmy here. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, how are you, Doctor Joe? Okay, good. So we've been working from home, right? Five people. Yeah. And we noticed that every time we turn on the microwave, our Wi-Fi goes down. So we um, we did a little research and we found out that possibly the microwave is leaking. So double two questions here. Is there a quick way to to test the microwave, and is microwave leakage dangerous for you? Well, microwaves uh, essentially are radio waves, so they they don't do any harm. They're they're not ionizing radiation, so you know microwaves are not linked to to any kind of of disease. Uh, I suppose it is possible that you get some leakage. I mean, if you if you look at the microwave oven, you see that in, in the window, you can see those wires crisscrossing all over the place. That's right. Yeah, well, those are to prevent leakage. But it's it's possible that there's some leakage uh, around the door. Um, That's I, when we ask when we ask Doctor Google, it's it's we want to throw away the microwave. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, the, you have to know. On Doctor Google, you have to know what kind of uh, whose office you have to go to. On the, exactly, on do, that's on do, why I figured I'd call Doctor Joe. <laughs> uh, there, there are of course uh, uh, electronic devices that you can buy. They're not very expensive. That that are you know that can test for that. Okay. Uh, supposedly, you can test by uh, taking a you know a small vial of, of water. And just uh, having the microwave on with something in, you always want to have something inside the microwave. Okay. And, and and just kind of you know hold it around and move it around in front of the microwave and see whether or not it uh, it gets warm. We, we we narrowed it down to putting the cell phone in the microwave. If you can call your cell phone inside the microwave, means it leaks. 
But if you can, if you try that with ten microwaves, you'll find out that nine of them leak. So yes, I, I don't know I, what's true. Yeah, no, I I know I I've seen that also. I've seen that. Uh, I don't think that that's a good uh, good measure. I think it okay. takes uh, uh, very little uh, energy to to activate the cell phone like that. So I, but, I, in I, the end, but in the end, it's not a health risk. I, I, no, it's it's not a health risk. It's not a health okay. risk. But I, I think you. if you take a small vial of water and just move it around, you know, the microwave while the microwave is on and see whether or not it uh, changes temperature at all. Moving. Thank you so much, okay. Dr. Joe. All right. Show. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, Jerry. Jerry. Yes, hi. Hi. Oh. So the Great Barrington Declaration, I think that's what the Trumps want to use, a, a focused uh, immunity response. In other words, just take care of uh, those who are more at risk uh, and let everyone else go free, open up the economy, signed in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Very good. And the opposition to that was the John Snow. Well, the John Snow Memorandum, which was published in The Lancet, eh? 6,000 or 7,000 scientists, vetted scientists, as opposed to right. some guys got a bachelor's in philosophy right <laughs> which we've seen in some like the climate change uh, uh, deniers apparently they have scientists too but uh, some have archaeological degrees and so on and so forth. right okay and who was john snow that i don't know okay uh, although he's a character i don't know if it's the same it's not the same character as in uh, Game of Thrones. Of no, it's I, not. I don't know. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not. Okay, we'll leave that question open. Maybe someone will know who Jon Snow okay. Uh, was. Okay, thanks very much. All right, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about this uh, Great Barrington Declaration, uh, which I, I, I think is going in the wrong direction. Uh, but right now, we are going to check the news. After that, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Mea culpa. Uh, I made a mistake last week. I was talking about the dirigibles, the Zeppelin that crossed the ocean, uh, the Atlantic, for the first time. And I said it was uh, uh, during World War I. I was wrong. It was 1919. So it was actually a year after the First World War had uh, ended. Uh, but the Zeppelins did uh, fly before that uh, all across Europe, but they did not cross the Atlantic until 1919. Also, you might want you might want to know, uh, and many of you may be surprised by this, that uh, just uh, a few weeks after the uh, first airship crossed the Atlantic, the first dirigible held aloft by uh, by hydrogen, uh, the first transatl transatlantic airplane flight took place. And no, that was not Charles Lindbergh. Uh, usually when you ask this question, who was the first one to fly across the Atlantic in an airplane, people say Charles Lindbergh. No, Charles Lindbergh was the first one to do it solo. But in 1919, British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown uh, flew across the Atlantic in an airplane. So they were the first one to do that. Okay. Anyway, last week I, I talked about this and I asked a question which was never answered. And the question was, uh, where did they get the hydrogen to fill the uh, Hindenburg and other uh, dirigibles like that? Where did they get the hydrogen in those days? Because obviously you needed a lot of hydrogen to, to fill these. 
where did they uh, get that? So if you know, give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Okay, let me go to John. I think John has a question. John. Yeah, I have a question on, on milk. Um, there are two brands of milk. One comes in a green bag and one comes in a blue bag. And the one in the green bag produces a wonderful result in my uh, hot milk frother, but the one in the blue bag fails. And this is absolutely reproducible. And I'd like to know why. But are you talking about the same fat content? Uh, 2%. 2%. And it, but not from the same company? No, no. One is Cabon and the other is I don't know what's in the blue bag. But uh, the cable milk works, and the other milk doesn't. Oh, so what? Uh, you get a froth with one and not the other? That's right. The the one the one in the blue bag it just looks miserable, and there's no froth. It's just warm milk. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, I I, I could uh, take a guess at your uh, hydrogen. Is it coming from oil or some aromatic compounds? No, no. Okay, no. and. For the guy with the microwave issue, yeah. the microwave usually runs at 2.45 gigahertz, which is very close to the low-frequency uh, Wi-Fi band. So if he switches his router over to the higher-frequency Wi-Fi band and reconfigures his devices to connect there, he may just work around the problem. Okay, there we go. Okay. All right, thanks for that. You're welcome. Uh, I'll, I'll think about that, but the, the milk thing, but... Uh, I mean, I, it, it can't have anything to do with the color of the bag. <laughs> so, okay. so no, it's, it's uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, the, obviously old milk is pasteurized, but it isn't necessarily pasteurized at, this, at the same temperature. I mean, the usual temperature is 70, 70 degrees, but maybe one pasteurizes it at somewhat of a different uh, uh, temperature. I, I have to think about that one. Okay, thanks. Good, interesting uh, question. Okay, uh, we got another question here from uh, Mamie, is it? Yes. Hi, Hi. Dr. Joe. How Hi. are you? Okay. Um, my question is, uh, last week you spoke about red food coloring right? and how um, there are health effects, negative health effects associated with them. Um, I was thinking about a childhood snack, um, pistachios that were dyed red. Is that the same reason why they stopped coloring them? And then again, I don't know why they were colored. Right. Well, actually, why they were colored first is, is more interesting. Okay. Because when us. pistachios were first uh, sold in North America, they were sold in these uh, uh, little things like the gumball machines where you would put in a nickel and you turn the handle and you'd get out a handful. And those were the same kind of dispensers that were used for peanuts. But uh, when you uh, put in a nickel for peanuts, you obviously got a lot more peanuts than when you put in a nickel for pistachios. And uh, sometimes people were uh, thinking that they were getting peanuts from the pistachio machines, and they were disappointed by the, the amount of nuts that they got. So the company decided to color the, the pistachios to differentiate it from peanuts. That was the original reason for the red coloring. Now, the, the uh, stories about the red coloring... Uh, in uh, uh, 1906, the U.S. passed the first ever uh, uh, Food and Drug Act, and uh, they said that uh, foods had to be shown to be safe before they could be put on the market. Surprisingly, before 1906, there was no legislation like that at all. And there were se seven food dyes that were allowed at that time uh, because they had been uh, 
according to standards of that time, uh, being proven safe. And those included uh, one called red dye number two. And then in the 1970s, there were some Soviet studies that were done that seemed to indicate that uh, there was some toxicity in Soviet rats. And the Americans didn't think too much of this. Uh, they couldn't replicate those studies, although there were some American studies that, that, that showed uh, some uh, genetic issues in, in rats. But anyway, when those studies were done, uh, you know, uh, repeated, it turned out that the amount of dye that had to be used was, was grotesque in terms of any uh, amount that humans would be exposed to. So uh, there, there was no real problem ever with either red dye number two or red dye uh, number 40. And uh, red dye number 40 is now uh, widely used around the world. We use it here in Canada. We also use red dye number two. In the U.S., red dye number two was, was banned. Uh, the studies were very questionable. But ever since, since then, there have been no issues with the, the red dye. The worst part uh, of the food dye business is that usually the foods that are dyed are junk foods, not because of the red dye, but because what else they have. They're usually high in fat, high in sugar, or high in salt. But, uh, you know, ingesting small amounts of, of red dye is, is not an issue. What, what particular thing were you worried about? Um, I just wanted to know why they stopped coloring them. I thought it was because it was like... Um for health reasons. Well, the well the the red dye number 2 in in the M&Ms that was taken out for what at that time was thought to be health reasons, although the red dye number 2 itself was never used in M&Ms. Uh, but the company thought that people were just going to avoid all red red colors, so they just removed it and anyway. So that was done for health reasons, but that was never really documented that there was any any problem in in, in humans. As far as the pistachio goes, I don't think it was removed for any health reason. It's just that originally it was put in just to differentiate between pistachios and, and peanuts, but eventually people learned that pistachios are not red and they're not green, and uh, so there was no longer any need to to dye it. But there was never and there's never been any real documented uh, effect of red dye or any other dye causing any problems. In a few cases, in some susceptible children, there have been stories that it may increase their hyperactivity if they're already hyperactive. But again, that never has been shown through proper clinical trials. But again, I, I think uh, as a general rule, it's best to, to minimize foods that are artificially dyed because they, those are usually foods that are not good nutritionally anyway. All right, you're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We have to check traffic once again, and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, back to the Great Barrington Declaration. The idea behind that, as put forward, is to protect those people who are most at risk, that is the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions, and let everyone else, the young people, go to bars, go to sporting events, open up everything, uh, because they claim that uh, the benefits of that outweigh the risks. This is no, certainly not mainstream scientific opinion, and it has been vociferously opposed uh, by a large number of, uh, of scientists who work in this particular area, who are epidemiologists. And they came out with the John Snow uh, uh, 
manifest because uh, they thought that uh, the public was uh, being misled by the Barrington uh, Declaration. Indeed, you know, the, we, we don't live in a society where you can so easily separate the ones who are at risk from the ones who are not because many of the young people have all kinds of predisposing uh, conditions, uh, overweight, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes. These are not restricted to, to the elderly, and those put them at risk. And furthermore, the elderly interact with many other uh, people, so they can still, or the young interact with many other people, so they can pass on the uh, the virus. Anyway, when you listen to serious epidemiologists and, and infectious disease uh, researchers, they will tell you that this, this uh, attempt at herd immunity just makes no sense uh, at all. And the best uh, way to tackle the problem that we have now is by physical distancing, is by wearing the masks, and by reducing the number of contacts that, uh, that we have. And then uh, hope for the best. Anyway, uh, this morning on the trivia show, I asked a question. Uh, which went back to the first century about Pliny, the natural Roman philosopher. Uh, natural philosophy in those days basically is what we would call a, a scientist. And uh, he had uh, looked at people who were living in mountainous areas, especially in the Alps, and discovered that uh, they were very, very likely to s suffer from this swelling in the neck, which now we call goiter. And... Uh, uh, goiter, of course, is an enlargement of the thyroid gland. He didn't know that. Pliny didn't know, know that. But through trial and error, he had um, uh, come to understand that if they took an extract of seaweed, of burnt seaweed, uh, it would resolve this problem. And indeed, that was correct. Well, originally, the ancient Chinese, long before Pliny, had already suggested that uh, uh, seaweed could be a treatment for goiter. Obviously, they didn't know what was going on. Today, we know. Uh, perhaps the most uh, prevalent reason for this uh, swelling of the thyroid gland is a lack of iodine in the diet. The thyroid gland, located in the neck, of course, and it's called thyroid because it looks like a, a shield, and that comes from the Greek word for shield, uh, produces uh, uh, hormones. And the two major hormones that it produces uh, both have iodine in their molecular structure. So where does this iodine come from? It has to come from the diet. And if there is not enough iodine in the diet, then the thyroid gland struggles to extract the tiny amounts of iodine from the bloodstream. And it enlarges, just like a muscle in your body enlarges a great deal. So the remedy for that is to get people to eat a diet that contains iodine. Now, in North America, we have basically solved this problem with uh, iodized salt because there's enough salt used in the diet that the iodine that is added to that is enough uh, uh, goiter. And uh, goiter used to be endemic in North America. There used to be a, a region called the goiter belt in Middle America and also in Middle Canada because the soil contains very little iodine there, so anything grown in that soil will have a little iodine, and the diet is lacking in iodine. The same thing, of course, is that what Pliny noted in the Alps, where the soil does uh, has very little uh, iodine. Iodine is found mostly in seawater, and therefore in soils that are near the ocean, uh, there will be iodine in uh, in the for that gets incorporated into into plants, and animals eat the plants, etc. 
Now, in North America, right now, we have a varied enough diet. Uh, eggs contain some iodine, milk contains some, some iodine, and of course, salt contains iodine. So uh, goiter, because of iodine deficiency, is very rare in North America today, but it used to be uh, very common. And uh, the thyroid, of course, is a very important gland. It controls metabolism. It, uh, uh, the hormones that it produces are absolutely uh, critical for, uh, for our life. But uh, today, even if the thyroid gland is removed, which is sometimes done surgically in the case of thyroid cancer or other thyroid problems, the hormones are available uh, in a pill form. Uh, thyroxine is the main uh, hormone of the uh, thyroid gland, and that is available. Uh, way back in uh, 1914, American scientist uh, uh, Kendall uh, first isolated thyroxine from, believe it or not, 6,000 pounds of, of uh, hog thyroid glands. And uh, within three years, it went on sale as a medication, solved a lot of problems. It was very expensive. It, uh, at that time, it went for $350 a gram. But uh, within a few years, uh, researchers had worked out the molecular structure of thyroxine and were able to synthesize it. And the stuff that we use today, Synthroid, for example, is a classic example, is made synthetically. So again, it's, uh, it's a, a, a triumph of uh, chemistry. The uh, milk frothing issue has uh, unleashed a, a, a cavalcade of uh, texts, and apparently other people have uh, found this problem as well. And uh, again, there are some who suggest that it is because the different companies uh, have uh, different milks that has different lifetimes and because they are pasteurized at different temperatures, and, and that may be the, the case. Uh, Someone did have the correct answer for where they got the hydrogen in uh, those days to lift the zeppelins, and that was made by reacting uh, an acid, uh, sulfuric acid, with a metal. And those of you who remember your high school chemistry, this is a classic experiment where you take a metal and you uh, add acid to it, and then you collect the hydrogen, and normally you test whether or not you have hydrogen by putting a glowing flint and seeing uh, that it uh, will light up the, the gas because hydrogen, of course, is, uh, is a very, very flammable gas. So, yes, that is exactly uh, the way that they got it in those days. Today, uh, there are many other ways of, of, of getting hydrogen. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, another time. Okay, well, that's about it. We are running out of time. Let me remind you once more. Tomorrow, the second session for the Trottier Public Science Symposium, it's at 12 noon. You can check your login. Uh, it's free, of course. You go to mcgill.ca slash OSS. That's our website. You'll see the instructions there on how you can uh, log in. You can join us and hear all about uh, some controversies in the food area from renowned chef uh, uh, Anthony Werner from England who is the author of the book, The Angry Chef. You'll find out why he is angry. And you'll also hear from Wendy Zuckerman, who's the host of the great podcast, uh, Science Versus. That's it. Uh, see you again next week. Same time, same station. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.